So welcome uh, everyone to our uh, December podcast. Um, I'm Matthew Ramsey, the Senior Knowledge Lawyer in the Employment Team at McFarland, and I'm joined this month by Chris Boyle. Hello, Chris. Hi, Matthew. Um, Chris, as you can hear from that little excerpt of his voice, um, has not got a classic English lawyer's received pronunciation um, accent, and that is because um, as well as being an excellent lawyer, he has an accent that's different from mine. And as we're going to be discussing accent in this podcast, we thought it made sense to have two different accents available to you. Uh, Chris, I don't know where you'd place your accent specifically in Scotland. Edinburgh, Edinburgh accent. And given that you've worked professionally mainly in, in London in city firms with a predominantly English workforce, how has your accent been received by your co-workers, n- mentioning no firm names? <laughs> I'd say it's generally been positive, actually. I, I mean, I, I break it down into a, a few steps. Gr- growing up and, and going to university, it was almost seen, your accent is almost seen as a proxy in Edinburgh, especially for which type of school you went to. So the state sort of private school divide. And then moving down to London, there's there's then the obvious sounding of my accent, so the Scottish accent being a Scot in London. So I wouldn't say, I would say it's generally been well received and it's probably been more the, the typical sort of increased imposter syndrome given the given that you you speak differently to the vast majority of people who who you're working with. But um but but on the face of it, I've I've not it's been generally well received by people. Um obviously we sort of preface all of this conversation by saying that uh, in the McFarlane's team we have lots of different accents, lots of people from different backgrounds. Um, and they're all excellent lawyers, and their accent doesn't make make any difference to the quality of their advice. But th- there is definitely prejudice that exists across the city and across um, all industry sectors. And, and the reason that we we thought it would be interesting to talk about this um, topic this month is that the Sutton Trust uh, put out a fascinating research paper uh, in early December looking at accents and so social mobility. Um, the social the Sutton Trust is a, a foundation that looks to improve social mobility generally. Looking at that um, report and, and accent generally, Chris, what, what did you what did you make of it? What what would, what did you think were some key points to draw from that? Yeah, it was an interesting report. I mean, the main thrust of the research, to echo what you said, Matthew, was that accent still a primary signal of socioeconomic status. And in terms of some of the statistics were fairly stark in the report, I'd say. But um, the the first finding, as you said, Matthew, was that attitudes to different accents have remained fairly static throughout time with received pronunciation, RP, French accented English, standard accents such as Scottish, Southern Irish and American being ranked higher as those traditional sort of industrial uh, accents associated, associated with industrial cities such as Birmingham, Manchester and Liverpool. And also ethnic minority accents such as Afro-Caribbean and Indian being being lower ranked than, than the, the standard accents or the RP accents I was talking about. Now, the consequence, the flip side of this is that the report noted that RP accents in the UK, which is estimated to be spoken by less than 10% of the population, do overwhelmingly o- occupy the sort of elite professions within the UK. 
And breaking that down a bit further into the actual statistics that the report went on to went on to discuss, it looked at a survey from a while back um, saying that only three percent of employers found that accent discrimination was an equality and diversity issue, even though in a separate survey it found that seventy six percent of employers admitted to discriminating against candidates due to the way that they speak. So that's quite a stark difference. Fascinating um, that they're prepared to admit to such a, a, a sort of obviously prejudiced approach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, very noteworthy that it was on an anonymized basis. <laughs> and contrasting that, looking at those statistics alongside the fact that the report says that 25% of employees have reported to being mocked about their accent in a professional setting, with 40% of employees reporting to be mocked in a social setting highlights a bit of a disconnect there in terms of um, how how employees are are taking to being mocked as opposed to the seriousness, which maybe things are slightly changing or or definitely there's a catalyst to things changing, but previously it's not necessarily being taken as seriously possibly as other types of discrimination. Do you think that's just because it's seen as as, um inverted commas banter yeah uh, the, the age-old banter defense I, th- I i think that is the case and one part of me obviously doesn't want to inflate the seriousness issue at times where there can just be sort of gentle jousting between different employees and the sort of gross sensitivity point but on the other issue there's there's been a tendency alongside all sorts of other types of discrimination to just categorise it as as banter and, and sweeping under the carpet that way. But as with other types of discrimination, it's important because it, with the mockery, there comes certain types of biases and biases and stereotypes about accents are, are used in many situations or a lot of situations to judge skills and abilities. And it, it does create a cycle whereby employers are tempted to favour those employees who talk and sound like them uh, rather than those with less traditional accents. And for that reason, it, it obviously has the byproduct of potentially, well, unequal access to employment and potentially excluding a large cohort of a, a talent pool who, who otherwise have similar skills and abilities to, to those with sort of inverted commas, more acceptable or traditional accents in those professions. We've seen a lot of employers over particularly the last uh, two or three years really trying to to step up their their game in terms of recruiting from a broader cohort of candidates, looking particularly, I suppose, at, at gender and, and ethnicity. Those obviously are, are protected characteristics under the Equality Act, where accent isn't that. Are you seeing clients coming to to accent in the same way, approaching it with the same degree of seriousness? And, and if they're not, I suppose, do, do you think they should be for the reasons that you've already outlined? And, and what might employees be able to do to sort of push that agenda a little bit further? I think it's, it's definitely coming to the forefront of um, the minds of employers recently. And especially it, it's becoming more of a hot topic in the media. For example, there's a, there was a very recent BBC documentary on, on this point, there's been there's been a couple of FT articles recently highlighting this point. So it's it's definitely an issue which is becoming which is coming more to the forefront of the agenda. 
given given inequalities of people being able to work in elite professions. In terms of, I'll go on to, and I'll go on to mention later on in the podcast how employers may actually approach this issue and take steps to improve their the makeup of the workforce. But in terms of challenging it, as you correctly said, there's not there's not necessarily a direct route to challenge um, on accent, socioeconomic background, as it's not a protected characteristic under the Quality Act. I mean, this is contrast contrast that position to in France, where I believe that individuals now are protected from accent discrimination. But having said that, the Equality Act does prohibit discrimination based on race, which non-exhaustively includes colour, nationality, ethnic or national origins. So I'll go on to look at whether discrimination based on accent or socioeconomic backgrounds to an employee could indirectly challenge through one of these bases. So that's interesting. So that that means that so you'd be protected because your accent is so closely connected with Scotland, which is a, a obviously a nationality. But somebody from let's say Newcastle might not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's that's an interesting point. So the Equality and Human Rights Commission says that national origins and going on the national origins aspect of, of definition of race and equality act. It goes on to list English and Scottish as separate national origins, obviously, but they wouldn't necessarily be different nationalities. So using that example and given that accent is a strong signifier of a national origin, any accent discrimination for me could potentially fall within, I could, there could potentially be an avenue of challenge there based on accent discrimination. Quite an arbitrary tool then. But potentially, because the... The ACAS code on this states that more re- local or regional variations, such as an employee working in the south of England who feels that being unfairly treated because they're, say, from Liverpool, Manchester, Newcastle, wherever, they, w- they would be unlikely to succeed on that basis. And there's, in fact, there's been a tribunal case on this, Ryan and R. Robertson and Sons Limited, where the claimant alleged that the HR manager had mocked them in a Liverpool accent based on a based on Harry Enfield characters from Liverpool. And in rejecting the claim, the ET said that whilst the conduct of the HR manager was gratuitous and unprofessional, the detrimental impact couldn't be said to be based on nas- national origin. How interesting. So uh, un- unless you can draw a clear dotted line between your accent and and, and a, a, a race or an, an ethnic origin or a national origin marker, effectively you're left without very much protection at the, as the law stands at the moment. You're left without protection from a discrimination perspective. You'd be left trying to argue based on normal, ordinary employment law principles such as such as breakdown, trust and confidence, or, or sort of bullying and harassment, but you you wouldn't be able to get there on on, on equality acts. Um, and and so you you mentioned that you wanted to talk about what um, what steps em- employers might might take. Um, it's just before we we do that, I suppose it's just um, worth flagging because it's a, a an interesting point that there is provision in the Equality Act for for socioeconomic disadvantage but only in very limited um, ways. And, and that's because it's actually in Section 1 of the Equality Act, isn't it, that there's um, an obligation on local authorities 
to have regard to the desirability of making decisions in a way that's designed to reduce inequalities of outcome, which result from socioeconomic disadvantage. But that o- that's only at the moment in force in Scotland and in, and in Wales. Mm. Although I think some local authorities in England do it voluntarily. So in Scotland and Wales, at least, local authorities and all public authorities have to have regard to income de- uh, deprivation and background when they're looking at how they allocate resources to education and health and and work and and so on but that's not that's not translated into any obligation on private sector employers yeah absolutely and and that's the gap there and that's where for what one of multitude of reasons why and mostly now to do with the the bottom line why a lot of employers are realizing that they're actually similar to they're it's lagging behind a bit but similar to expanding the co the cohort and the the talent pool that it looks for in terms of ethnicity and other aspect other protected characteristics that's why employers are now taking or, or some employers are taking real action to try and address socioeconomic disadvantages and so the most obvious ones i suppose are to put in place quite straightforward steps like having cv blind recruitment or or what's called i think contextual recruitment where you you look at the at a, at a candidate's grades by comparison with their peer group in in the, whichever school they've come from rather mm. than as an absolute measure mm. so you know th- three b's for instance in a, a school where everybody else gets the d might be regarded as more uh, more favorably than somebody who gets straight a's if everybody else in their school gets straight a's yeah. to try to give some sort of context to the to the the raw number um, are there any other steps that that um, you'd encourage forward-thinking employers to to take? I, I think first, as a first step, it, it should form part and parcel of their um, of their overall wider diversity strategy, and they should also really know their organisation and collect and analyse their data so they can they can produce sort of measurable outcomes and benchmarks from the data because. Your benchmarks and outcomes obviously are only as good as the, your consistent data collection, basically. So they should know the makeup of their organization on a consistent basis, first of all. And the one issue with this addressing this as opposed to other types of um, underrepresented groups uh, are that you always get the question about how can you measure socioeconomic or class backgrounds, given that it can be quite a flexible concept to, or subjective concept to some what's working class compared to middle class, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's probably nowhere more pronounced than in the UK uh, in terms of class backgrounds. In interrupt, there's a lovely, I was, I, I mentioned to my my father over the weekend that we were going to be doing this and he um, he's very keen on on all things theatrical. And he emailed me this quote from um, George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion, so My Fair Lady. It's impossible for an Englishman to open his mouth without making some other Englishman despise him. I thought that was, <laughs> that, that sort of epitomised the concepts that we're, we're covering today. No, absolutely. Uh, I, yeah, I was, I was talking about how, how is it possible to measure the sort of socioeconomic backgrounds. And interestingly on this, the Social Mobility Commission suggests using occupation of the highest earning parent of a child at 14 as the strongest signifier of socioeconomic background, which is extremely specific 
um, and it includes three other key measurements, such as highest level of parental qualification, types of school attended by the child between ages 11 and 16, and whether they had any free school eligibility. So that, at least there, we have some sort of definition that we can work with. And I believe that KPMG are currently using this and its collation of data and moving a step ahead of collation of data, KPMG and PwC are actually using this data to um, collate socioeconomic pay, pay gap reporting in a similar way to the sort of statutory gender pay gap reporting regulations, which which all employers with with over a certain amount of employees have to have to report on a yearly basis. So that so that's interesting in terms of the initial steps, but but obviously there's no point having the steps and having the data if if you've not got a strategy of how to deal with it. So this, in terms of how to operationalize and increase, um, sort of improve the underrepresentation. In reality, this is a nub of it, nub of, nub of the issue. And along with contextual recruitment, before you even get to the recruitment stage, I suppose, it's this is where bridging programs can be crucial to close the gap in between pupils at school, knowing even where to apply to or having the background knowledge of knowing what they want to do. So bridging programs such as outreach to pupils at schools, all the way through to, it's not just a pupil issue, and all the way through to graduate recruitment and throughout actually an employee's career path to the firm. It, it, bridge, it bridges the information sort of experience gap with pupils or university students who don't necessarily come from the same background that this is almost assumed knowledge that you know where to apply to. That, that, that would definitely, that definitely would help bridge that gap somewhat and examples of programs to help provide this bridge for want of a better turn of phrase are at McFarlane's for example we have we've launched the legal academy which is a two-year school pipeline program to give pupils from years 12 and 13 from a lower socioeconomic background the chance to come into a law firm and sort of develop some skills and have some experience of being within a law firm in the city and I know many other many other private sector employers in, in the city have have also started similar schemes on the public sector side but we've also seen the civil service running a civil service and fast stream which is a which is a one-week program again for those pupils and underrepresented backgrounds to come in and actually see what it is like working in those kind of environments that they would not otherwise have possibly known about or even considered applying for previously and so moving on from that you've got the data you've got programs it's all very well having that and people may say well that's paying lip service to the issue one another fundamental point to change is the culture of the firm and culture of employers and what steps they can take to define their culture so that people from people from those backgrounds actually want to apply for those employers and on that, from that perspective, employers need to sort of prioritise issue this issue and make sure it's taken seriously at the top levels of leadership. How they can do that? There's a, there's in the social mobility toolkit which I've talked about that they suggest various various different ways in which this can be done. But 
given that the gatekeepers at the highest levels of the organisation are still those who come from higher socioeconomic backgrounds, having, for example, social mobility allies through all levels of a business to keep this issue always on the agenda is would certainly help things. Um, so it would also help to take away from the the lip service criticism that's, that's sometimes levelled at these initiatives. Another point which actually it was highlighted in the, the Sutton Trust report was that I know unconscious bias gets gets a bad rap at times, and the Sutton Trust research actually acknowledges that a lot of unconscious bias training still to find empirical evidence of how effective that it is. But on this point, it says that there's some evidence that recruiters simply reading a simple text helps to reduce unconscious bias before recruitment and can ex- and can reduce accent-based differences. So I've actually got the text here. So, so if recruiters read the text that says that recent research has shown that when evaluating candidates' performance, interviewers in the UK can be influenced by the candidates' accents of English. In particular, they tend to rate candidates who speak with a standard accent more favourably than candidates who speak with non-standard accents. This is an example of so-called accent bias. The focus should be on the knowledge and skills of the candidate, not their accent. Please keep this in mind when assessing the suitability of candidates. So that's another point. And then probably final easy easy solution to bring this all together is changing policies to be clear that any any mockery based on socioeconomic background or accent counts as potential serious misconduct can also be another example of how seriously firms are treating this. But that in and of itself is pretty fruitless unless there's all the culture changes and and, and all the other improvements um, that I've I've just talked about. And so there's work there to be done both for senior management from a leadership perspective, recruiting line managers plus internal HR recruitment teams at an operational level, and then for all employees to sort of embed that culture um, more more centrally. Yeah, yeah. Effectively, your culture needs to be consistent with, or your policies need to be consistent with your culture. There's no point having a mismatch, otherwise. It does fall into um, it does fall into the the lip service criticism that I've talked mm-hmm. about, and, and I suppose you know any any definition will always uh, have have uh, hard edges, which where there will be difficult cases. Whenever you have any definition, and any lawyer will will know that. Um, yeah, but it doesn't deny the fundamental truth as you've outlined that this is a, a real source of prejudice across our society. Um, and one that is worth paying attention to in, in exactly the way you've described. Yeah, and just because exactly underrepresented groups doesn't mean it's not represented at all. So you will always get these situations where um, where it's, it doesn't necessarily capture the the people who they're trying to capture, as it were. But. Great. Well, that's um, that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, so jobs there for for everyone um, for all our clients to to take forward if they so choose if you would obviously like to to discuss any of the issues that that chris is, has raised uh, in this podcast his contact details are in the episode description as are mine uh, feel free to get in touch with either of us um, if you have any questions or comments 
we will hopefully see you again for our January podcast. Um, but in the meantime, uh, wishing you all a very merry festive period uh, and a happy new year. Thank you.